Welcome to All Things Vegas, nourishing self-care for the helping professional. During our time together, we will explore a wide variety of topics relating to self-care, all especially geared to the helping professional. Our guests are all thought leaders and cutting edge providers in their respective fields of endeavor. They will offer not only helpful insights, but practical skills that you can begin to use immediately. John Summers Flanagan is a professor of counseling at the University of Montana. He's a clinical psychologist and author or co-author of over 100 publications, including nine books and many professional training videos. John has published many newspaper columns, op-ed pieces, including articles in Psychotherapy Networker, Counseling Today, and Slate Magazine. You can learn more about John's latest venture, the Montana Happiness Project, at montanahappinessproject.com. Well, John, welcome so I really appreciate you being here today and uh, interesting topic that we are talking about. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks, Absolutely. Kathy. Absolutely. So uh, talk to me a little bit about your topic today. Well, my first question for you was going to be, how did you sleep last night? Because that's the topic. That's the topic. Yeah. Well, weirdly, not very well. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm really sorry (laughs) to hear that. I hope that my bringing this topic up didn't maybe get in the way of you sleeping. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. 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 But that's, I mean, but I think, I think it is such a, a relevant topic because it is so basic to how we take care of ourselves. Yes. It happens every night. It happens every night. Yeah. 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 So talk to me a little bit about the whole idea of sleep and maybe why sometimes we just don't do it very well. I guess the first thing is, you know, sleep is so important. And if we don't sleep well, we are possibly going to suffer from some consequences, excuse me. And uh, one of the consequences is illness. Uh, Another one, more accidents. Uh, People who are having trouble sleeping have more mental health problems. All by itself, insomnia is a predictor of suicide. It's not a great predictor, but it does seem to, even if it's all by itself, that's how much distress it can cause people. And I know just from my own experience, sometimes struggling to sleep well, and the experience of my clients and my friends and maybe you last night, that it's just ubiquitous, right? We do have trouble sleeping sometimes. Right, exactly. And it doesn't, um, I mean, and, and I can only speak to my personal experience, obviously, but, you know, thinking back on last evening, there wasn't anything yesterday that was unusual. It was, you know, all of the sleep hygiene stuff was all in place and so interesting. Yeah, I think about that and I think, well, we are, as humans, we are, as everyone likes to say, especially the existentialists, we're meaning makers, right? And so when you don't sleep, mm-hmm. It's really common to try to come up with a reason for why you didn't sleep. We try to explain it, right? And so I'm sure at least at some level in your mind you were thinking, well, did I drink caffeine too much or too late? Or did I not get the exercise? Or that there may have been something. And I think sometimes our brains can take us down the wrong track. And so I have actually a personal example about that. That'd be great. Yeah, share. Yeah. So way back when, I went to a community college. I went to Mount Hood Community College, and I only went there to do sports. I was a kind of first-generation college student. And so I go there to do sports. I'm probably not sleeping all that well. Um, I'm probably not really caring whether I sleep that well because I'm a first-year college student and playing sports and doing things I want to do. And 
I started to experience this thing called sleep paralysis, which I didn't know what it was, right? Now I know it's a thing. And so I would be, I'd lay down and take a nap on the couch or something, and I would start to have this weird sound, and it would, I'd wake up, and it'd be like weird static. And then I would think that there was some kind of evil, demonic, or scary person at the end of the couch, and I couldn't move. <laughs> well, and I, and, and so my meaning making at that point was I think either I'm about to be possessed by a demon, not a good outcome, or maybe uh, I am going to develop psychic powers and be able to have telepathy. I mean, this, and seriously, that was my other thought. I thought, well, this, maybe this is going to be really good. <laughs> well, that would be an interesting outcome, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Neither yeah. of them happened. No. Yeah. And, and that's, this is one of the things that I think, um, you know, our minds can take us down the road of interesting explanations, which may or may not have any validity. That seems to be a human thing. And knowledge is power, right? And so if we know more about sleep and we know more about how it affects people and we know about sleep paralysis. So what happened to me was like in the early 2000s, I'm reading the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and I come upon a section on sleep paralysis and it just describes what happened to me perfectly. It stopped after probably, you know, three or six months. It just only happened for a while. And so um, it's just remarkable to me how there is important knowledge out there and we should know more about sleep because I think our expectations and the meaning that we try to make around our sleep or our non-sleep sometimes can cause us more trouble. Yes, well, I would totally agree because I think that... Um, a lot of us, mm -hmm. you know, I think I think the meaning-making mind that we all have, you know, it's it can be useful sometimes, and then not so much. It's a beautiful thing, yeah, right. And I think we love the fact that we are meaning makers, um, but the meaning-making sometimes gets us in trouble. Yeah, and I think so. So a, a couple more things about sleep and knowledge, and I'm sure most of the listeners know this, but uh, when it comes to sleep disruptions, right, it's going to happen, and there are three main kinds of insomnia. Initial insomnia, that's difficulty going to sleep. Terminal insomnia, that's when you wake up at three or four in the morning and you plan to sleep till seven, but you know you're done. And then there's intermittent insomnia, and that's when it's, it's kind of like choppy sleep. It sort of goes with sleep cycles. Every 60 to 90 minutes, you wake up, and you don't feel particularly rested in the morning. And so then you're bothered by that. So let me ask, which, which of those did you experience last night? Uh, I did a little of the intermittent, the third kind. That is for sure my most common. Yeah. Uh, and I go to sleep really fast. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in the night, I'll wake up, and I'll often go back to sleep quickly. Um, but sometimes I don't, and then it feels like it's sort of that terminal insomnia, and really, it's very upsetting. Yeah, I think that that is. Um, I think that's not unusual for people to have that experience, and how we how we go about it, and and you know, this might be something that we can um, address is. 
the fact that a lot of the people that are probably listening to this to this podcast uh, might be shift workers targeted at people that potentially have um, different sleep cycle schedules in terms of when they go to when they can go to bed and wake up and you know those things change with shift work absolutely and one of the main points that I wanted to make you just said it and that is it's not that unusual Uh, and so really important for us to not pathologize our sleep disruptions that seem to be pretty common and and I get a little bit annoyed at the message we get from a lot of the media and really well-meaning health educators um, that we should get eight hours a night of somehow uninterrupted sleep I think that's pretty unusual Uh, I was just doing a couple of workshops for the teachers in uh, Missoula County Public Schools and I had about 400 of them and I did a survey for both of my classes, each one about 200, and asked them how many of them had one of those three forms of insomnia. I would say between 70 and 80% of teachers were experiencing one form or another. And they're not shift workers, right? Right. And so, but they have probably plenty on their minds. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It is interesting. So how how much of a role, I want to take us back to Mm -hmm. this idea of not pathologizing our, our sleep things, you yeah. know, the, the things we have around sleep. So how big of a role do you feel like that plays in perpetuating a disrupted sleep pattern? I'm not sure how big of a role, but my impression is it plays a significant role for many people. I think the expectation, A, that we should sleep through the night will sometimes make us think there's something wrong with us when we don't, when in fact humans i think from the beginning of time sometimes were a little more arrhythmic than others Uh, some people are pretty good at doing that eight hours of sleep but i think a lot of people just are naturally arrhythmic and they get their sleep in different ways and sometimes they do catch up sleep and sometimes they sleep through the night and other times they don't sleep very well at all and so i think the idea gets in the way and i don't know how much um I also think that when people are lying in bed and they've awakened at three in the morning or whenever it is, and then they start to think, oh no, (laughs) oh no, I'm supposed to have eight hours of sleep, or if I don't get my sleep, I'm going to be miserable, or whatever that sort of mentality, and it's perfectly natural to have those thoughts, but they're not helpful thoughts. (laughs) They're not going to help you get to sleep. And we all know, I mean, we know this from children and we know this from ourselves. It's, you can't make yourself sleep. Sleep comes and sleep goes. And so it's a really tricky thing. Yeah. So can we, can we talk? Because, you know, I always like to make sure that we leave people listening to our broadcast some kind of way to work with some of these identified concerns that they might have around this. So, yes. yeah, can we start to look at some of that yes. kind of thing? Yeah, I have lots talk. of ideas. Oh, good deal. Well, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, so we have these experiences. We're going to be, we know we will wake up, right? Or we know our patients will wake up and we need to be somewhat reassuring to ourselves and others. And so I think of it as a little bit of a mindfulness activity where 
we know this is going to happen. And so maybe we need a mindfulness meditation tool to use in the night. And it might be just simply counting breaths. You know, the old counting sheep tends to be a bad idea, although um, because counting activates sort of the mental processing. And so then you, you think, oh, no, what number am I on? And so I usually start by telling people they could count their breaths. And I do that with them. And then I'll say, well, now let's just figure that because the most important part about mindfulness meditation is non-judgmental acceptance, let's just now accept any distraction that happens and the fact that you're probably going to lose track of your numbers anyway. So let's just stay with one. Or let's stay with whatever you want with each breath. I have a pastor friend of mine who likes to say to himself with every out-breath, I am here, and then here I am. And it's sort of an interesting thing. He feels like it's very spiritually grounding. So I think it's really good to have a tool that we come to in the night because the more we practice the tool, the more it has a chance of being comforting to us in the night the more we feel comforted, the better chance we have to either go back to sleep or to experience this thing that I would call almost sleep, which is kind of a relaxation response, is what Herbert Benson called it in 1975, and your physiological benefits are very similar to sleep. So if you can be calm, even though you'd rather be sleeping, it's it's that's the best option you have. Right. And... Would it make sense that once there is kind of a, this practice, whatever it is you choose, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's staying with the number one, yeah, you know, whatever it is, that do you do you do you feel like we start to associate that with calm, with rest, and totally. that, that and that kind of yes amplifies it. Absolutely. Because, well, here's an example, and this is a funny one. This is a different technique, but it sort of speaks to what you just said. Um, There's this thing called three good things. It was developed by Martin Seligman. You know, you make a list of three good things as you go to bed and you explore in your mind, why did those things happen? He says it's a treatment for depression, even by itself, and that anybody who does it for a week will never want to stop. He's maybe a little more optimistic about it than I am. So I always, you know, I made fun of it. It's like, ah, it's just kind of silly. I, I would try it, and it's like, I go to sleep sometimes so fast I wouldn't be able to do it. But I wake up sometimes at 3 in the morning, and I have some terrible dark thoughts. And it's like the world is ending, and I've made it so. And they're not rational. They're not helpful. They're not accurate. And so I decided to start doing three good things when I wake up in the night. And so now it's almost a little joke I have with myself. And the three good things never works perfectly for me, but it's so much better than the dark thoughts I would have had otherwise. And the cool thing about three good things is it's not just, oh, think of three good things. It gives our brain a little something to chew on, like, so, but why did they happen? You know, so why did you get out and get exercise yesterday? Well... And so then your brain starts to think, well, why did that happen? Well, I have a value of health, and so that's why. And I think oftentimes as we explore that, we come to some either appreciation of what other people have brought or appreciation of our own values and our habits and the things that we're making happen in our lives. And, of course, negative thoughts slip in there. 
and spoiling thoughts like, oh, but so what if you exercised? You still have destroyed the world. Hmm, I think I'll think of three other good things. You know, and, and it, you know, it's an imperfect solution, but it's way better than just being stuck with bad thoughts. And I think it's also really important to recognize that there are really difficult things going on in the world. Oh, yes. Really difficult things. And, um, and that basically all we're doing is trying to balance it a little bit. Yes. You know, right. So, so that we're not so weighted. Which makes the whole concept of, and I am not interested in toxic positivity, but the whole concept of it's okay to distract ourselves from these big burdens that we're feeling, mm-hmm. right? And if we're feeling it in the night... I have a friend who does podcasts. She will just, she knows she's going to wake up. She has a podcast ready. She puts it on when she wakes up. And, you know, she, back when I had a podcast, she said, yours is really good. It puts me to sleep really fast. Is that a compliment, John? <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> I, I thought it was my voice. That's great. So what other, so, okay, so that would be a really good strategy if, if um, you're waking up maybe intermittently in the in the night or yeah. waking up too early. Yes. What about those people that just can't seem to go to sleep? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, some similar principles, right? You need to have something that is soothing and calming and comforting for you to uh, try to experience. Now, it could be a little object, maybe a silk blanket that you just let yourself feel and focus on. You know, the, you know, the people who talk about the brain being a chatterbox or like a barking dog, you know, they would say, well, we need a mantra. We need a bone really for the, the barking dog in our brain to chew on. And so it could be a physical thing. It could be a little progressive muscle relaxation where you start with your toes and you tense those toes and you creep up your body. Um, and so almost anything that you can use as a tool to create a less disturbing sleepless state so that's one thing but then of course um, the other piece has to do with behavior and it has to do with the thing that we know of as sleep hygiene and so before you go to bed to give yourself a better chance to go to sleep quickly there are a few behavioral strategies and so if it's okay oh absolutely go for it and, yeah and I'd love you to add some because okay. there are a bunch, and I'm sure my brain will not remember all of them. All right. I've got the list, so you go ahead. Oh, good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the first one is routine, right? Yeah. Uh, the more consistent you are, the more your body is sort of ready to go to sleep. And right. so that's a good one. Yeah. You know, it's worked for generations of children, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it works way better than... Yeah. Try not having a routine for your kids and exactly. see how they sleep. One that I think a lot of adults overlook. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and of course, we can disrupt our routine. We don't want to be too rigid about it. There are times when you want to stay up a little later and you're having fun and that's okay. Uh, but, of course, uh, then there's caffeine and caffeine curfews. Uh, my caffeine curfew is 2 p.m. Um, and I, I just try not to drink caffeine after that. Now, not everyone is sensitive to caffeine, but if you are, it will wake you up in the night because the half-life of caffeine is long enough to get you into the middle of the night and make it so your sleep is a little thinner, and then you wake up more easily. My sisters drink, like, my sister, one of them has awakened me at midnight making coffee. 
a pot of coffee for herself. Um, anyway, so she's not affected in the way that I am. Um, so everybody has to find their own rules. And of course, alcohol is another one. I, I, I was online and, you know, sadly it was Twitter. And I saw someone asking other people, you know, saying, I can't get to sleep. I've already had a glass of wine. And uh, and then somebody says, well, what kind of wine was it? And it's like they're talking about something that's completely not good for sleep, as if it matters what kind of wine. It doesn't. Generally, alcohol is not good for sleep quality. Right. It can put you to sleep, but it doesn't tend to help in the long run. Exactly. Yeah. It's. I think it's more... From what I understand, it's more disruptive than a lot of people yes, recognize. Yeah. And yes, and it's my understanding is yeah, it's less good sleep quality, mm-hmm. and so it disrupts it later. And sometimes you people think it gets them to sleep because it sometimes can relax them and get them to sleep. And then, yeah, um, regular exercise obviously is an important thing. There's a thing called the uh, temperature decline where you take your hot bath or hot shower an hour or a half hour before you go to bed because as the body declines in temperature, it tends to increase the speed at which you can get to sleep. Okay. So that's a nice one. You know, trying not to eat the foods that you have personally discovered that keep you awake. <laughs> and it's hard and it's tempting uh, to, to eat things that you really enjoy. And uh, generally speaking, probably better not to. And they are pretty individual. I mean, there are, I think, kind of, they might fall kind of in the category of caffeine that, you know, we can say that a lot of people are sensitive to yes. fill in the blank, but it's certainly not across the board. No, no. I mean, I've read and heard spicy foods mm-hmm. should be avoided. And you think about it, well, it makes some sense if your gastrointestinal system is more spiced up and or activated, then probably not going to help you sleep. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it's very individual and people should monitor those things and see how they're doing. So would you imagine that a sleep diary of some kind might be useful in this kind of case? Yeah. To kind of ferret some of that out? Again, knowledge is power, right? Yeah. And so if you know your own patterns, that would really be, uh, it would give you a better chance to intervene with yourself in a way that makes sense. Yeah, this podcast is really about, you know, what is our own agency? Yes. You know, what can we do? Yeah right on our own behalf yes. so doing that kind of self-exploration right like you said knowledge is power right and you discover things about yourself generally we usually know ourselves best but we don't always monitor ourselves well uh, and so doing a explicit sleep diary and doing that for a couple of weeks and seeing what patterns come out of that that could be really informative and illuminative, uh, illuminating and really helpful. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that that is, I think that is such a, a strategy for, I mean, anybody can do that. We could all do that. And we could all probably benefit from that, even if we're sleeping well. Yeah, totally. Right? Yes. Well, and, and because it's so individual, right? right? I mean, we know, for example, that Another sleep hygiene tip is to not do screens, right. you know, right. for 30 to 60 minutes before you go to bed. And my friend who's a big sleep person, she's like, everybody in the family's phones are in lockdown 30 minutes before bedtime. 
yeah, the research on that is, yes, it does disturb sleep onset, usually on average by eight to 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so you're better off without it. Um, now, when I say on average, that means that for some people, the light, they're, they're probably really light sensitive. It might be 30 or 40 or 60 minutes that it postpones or delays their onset of sleep. For other people, they might be able to do the screen thing and it, they fall asleep with it in their hands, you know. Uh, it, that reminds me also of the, the behaviorists, right? The behaviorists say, your bed should only be used for sleeping. It should be a sleep stimulus. So don't sit in your bed and do homework and don't sit in there and don't read, don't watch television. They do make an exception for sex because, you know, behaviorists probably realize that they're not going to win that Right. <laughs> Even behaviorists can be rational. Yeah, okay. um, but, I mean, they have a really good point, but it is not true for everyone. Many people enjoy reading in bed and then put the book down and find that it got them to a place where they can fall asleep easier. This is especially true for people who have initial insomnia, right? They figure, I'm going to be awake for an hour anyway, I might as well read until I'm a little sleepier. I would never advise someone who is fine, who has something that's working for them to change it. But if for some people reading is consistently disruptive, and they might find that out from a sleep diary, right. then maybe you find another time during the day to sleep. I mean, to, not to sleep, but to read. To read, to read. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I kind of think about, I'm one of those people that I have to read for at least 30 minutes before I go yeah. to sleep at night. Yeah. And But it also matters what I read. Yes. Yeah. And my like, wife don't is, get into a good murder mystery. <laughs> exactly. My yeah. wife is very similar. Um, she has her nighttime reading yeah. and then other reading. And the nighttime reading is just a little less exciting. Kind of semi-boring a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I have several textbooks I could you know, <laughs> share with you that I think would work. That, yeah. It just kind of, but it does, it's really interesting how when you really, again, you know, the idea of tracking it and learning about your own patterns and your own sensitivities that I just realized that I love a good murder mystery, but it's not bedtime reading. Right. Right. Well, for me, anyway. for yeah, for several reasons. One is it gets your brain going, but the other one is it gets your body going. And then the other one is you might want to finish it. I know. <laughs> what have I done? What, oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's great. So um, any any so are there different strategies? So we talked about the having a difficult time going to sleep. We talked about the intermittent mm -hmm. dis disturbed sleep. What about um, those of us, because I fall in this category generally, um, waking up at three in the morning. I think the same principles are in operation, right? Um, I am a little bit more of the 3 a.m. awakener. And so when that happens, uh, I, you know, and this is, I think, really consistent with the scientific literature, it's really important to make a decision. Do you want to get up and do something? And if, for example, you're a writer... You may think, wow, this is a really good time for me to get up and start writing. And if it is, I think that's fine. But if you're going to stay with trying to sleep, 
than to practice one of those almost sleep techniques. And there are really four different options. One option is uh, that progressive muscle relaxation thing, which you can go online and find out more about and practice from your toes up. The second one is visual imagery. And that is some people are really good with visual imagery. And if you say to them, imagine yourself on a beach, they are there. And usually, if people can have multi-sensory visual images and kind of transport themselves to a place that's calming, right? Don't take yourself on some interplanetary imaginary trip that's too much like that detective novel, right? Uh, so take yourself to a comforting place. But visual imagery is very powerful, really good for people who can do it well. If you tell some people to use visual imagery, it's like everything. If they're not good at it, it will frustrate them more. And then they will be frustrated and not sleeping because they're thinking, oh, I was supposed to imagine myself in a place and now I can't even do that. What's wrong with me? And they go back down the road of negative thinking. The third one is deep breathing. And I'm sure you have talked about that on this show. And the most important thing with the deep breathing is it is something to focus on. And it's always happening. And so if you can maintain a nice pace and sometimes pair the breathing with a mantra uh, or a prayer or, again, whatever is a comforting association with your breathing... That's a really good almost sleep technique. It's probably the best one. Um, it's certainly the oldest because we've been breathing yeah. for a long time. And then the fourth one is a thing called autogenic training. And that's basically kind of self-talk in the night. It's a little bit like self-hypnosis. You basically say a repeating message to yourself and to your body, something like, and again, you would want to individualize this so that it works for the person. But something like, my body is warm and relaxed. My body is warm and relaxed. Now, that's unless you're already too warm. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you want to phrase things in a way that fits for the person. But some kind of steady, repeating message that offers you a suggestion uh, and you know you could use that old-fashioned hypnotic suggestion feeling very sleepy <laughs> right you yeah. could use that but it's a repeating auditory or thought-based message that people can use and of course there are variations on those for obviously some people would turn on possibly an audio recording that they could listen to that might help them get a faster fall back asleep experience. Um, I, and I'm also just aware that many people who are listening may have pets or children, both of which will disrupt sleep. I was working with one woman, and as we explored her sleep situation, she has a new dog, puppy, that she loves and is consistently disturbing her at night, both 
to go pee, but also jumping on her. And uh, she and I had to say, well, <laughs> if you somehow can make a different arrangement for your dog's sleeping situation, your sleeping might also improve. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because there are those kinds of outside things that... Yes. That we need to manage. That we just need to manage our environment also right. the best we can. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I wanted to bring us back to is this... I think you spoke to this earlier, and I just wanna I wanna clarify this one point. But there's this, I think, mental process as you were talking about earlier, that can be so distressing when you feel like something is wrong with you. I can't even do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we come back and talk about our our self talk? Yes. Around around. Uh, the, the kinds of things that we might ruminate on. I mean, I find that I think about things at night that I don't even consider during the day. Right. Yeah. What's that about? Uh, oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I'm asking you. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, the brain is a mysterious and wonderful thing. Uh, and for whatever reason, it's bringing up things that you just hadn't even thought about thinking about during the day in the middle of the night. Uh, and so handling, this is maybe, this might be the crux of the whole thing, right? Handling troubling thoughts, handling um, disruptive thoughts. And if we think about troubling thoughts that come in the night, often I think, I mean, people have different kinds, right? I mean, I shared mine, uh, you know, I'm sure yours are somewhat different. Um, but one quality is that ruminative quality, and you used that word a minute ago, and that is we start to chew on that. And sometimes it's very cyclical, right? And it feels like it's just so repetitive. You just don't get anywhere. Your brain somehow in the middle of the night has brought up a problem, and you're just going in circles, and you're not, and you're thinking, then you start to think about one of two things usually, that one is you're anxious about the next day and how this problem might manifest itself in the future, right? Future-based anticipatory anxiety. Or you begin to lament and regret this problem, and maybe it was an interpersonal relationship problem, maybe it was a performance problem, but whatever it was, you go back there and you start to chew on it having happened in the past, or you're chewing on it, it's going to happen in the future, or right now, you know. So unhelpful. So what do you do? I mean, there are obviously the sort of mental strategies I've mentioned about refocus on something that's more pleasant, three good things, a mantra, progressive muscle relaxation, etc. Also, you it, it can be really beneficial to... Um, you know, get up and write it down. You know, just if it's if it's the kind of thing that has hooked you, and you just don't feel like your usual mental tools are going to get you to stop thinking about it, getting up and writing it down, getting up and recording it, getting up and kind of getting it out of your brain onto something else. Sometimes one of the ways that it disturbs, I think, sleep 
going forward is that people then start to worry about like, oh, now I, I have to have three things I need to remember for tomorrow morning because I, and I didn't write them down. Well, go ahead and write them down now, right? Keep something next to your bed that you could write down some things or uh, your phone to record into or something like that, although I'm reluctant to have people with their phones right there, but people do it all the time. Uh, and if it's a way for you to record something that you will remember that will get it off your brain, mm -hmm. that could be so useful. So it's kind of an unloading, so yes, to speak. I think so, yeah. yeah. Which sometimes can feel kind of great. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and people feel kind of frozen, I think. Like, uh, I can't move because in this position at this point, I'm thinking of this, but yeah. And if you feel really, really hooked, just get up and deal with it, either by writing it down. And it might be something you can deal with right then. Um, so it might disturb other people in the house, and you have to think about that. Yeah. Then they'll be having sleep problems. <laughs> Maybe. Or wake the dog up. <laughs> Could wake up the dog. I think that these strategies that you've talked about are really really accessible for people i mean these are things that we can do yeah and one of the things i like to say to people about it is that you know kathy you're going to be awake in the night again <laughs> <laughs> so you'll have a chance to try this yeah. why not try it yeah. why not try something rather than feel like you're a victim to whatever it is that's happening in your sleep cycle so as we start to wrap up, John, are there, are there, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think is really salient to this conversation? Because it's been, I think, really, really useful, really practical stuff. So, Great. Yeah. yeah I, you know, one other sleep-related thing is nightmares. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, that's going to wake people up, too, and wake you up in a disturbed emotional state. Um, I would like to just share that there is an evidence-based treatment for nightmares called imagery rehearsal therapy, IRT, IRT. <laughs> oh, we have to all do that, I know, don't we? Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really pretty simple. Yeah. It's very much uh, visual imagery-based, and it has to do with, and people can go online and they could apply it to themselves. This is what I like about imagery rehearsal therapy. It really has to do with empowering people to take more control over their dream so that they visualize an alternative ending several times, over and over. An alternative ending, like a happier ending, a healthier ending, whatever you want. And so it's this cool kind of empowering imagery activity that it may not make the nightmare, and especially if it's a repeating one that's been going on for years or whatever, may not instantly make it go away, but it sort of changes things. It kind of changes the narrative. It sort of inserts you into the process as an empowered person who's interacting with your dreams in a proactive and responsive way. Anyway, I really like it as a tool. It's just another tool to deal with a different sleep disruption. And, and that's really interesting because I think a lot of us are kind of at the mercy of our dreams, it feels like sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, actually imagining that we might actually have some agency there. Yes. It's interesting. Well, and dreams, of course, are a wonderful 
and creative source. But when they're frightening, they are really frightening. Uh, I had the good fortune of taking a semester-long course on dreams and dream interpretation when I was in graduate school here at the University of Montana. Yeah. Uh, it was so good. And it was very enlightening, not just about dreams, but just about the ways in which we experience things that feel like they're outside of our control and outside of our understanding, right? And we can easily make up reasons why we have certain nightmares or certain dreams. And uh, I think it's, it's, it can be a great source of creative inspiration and also a source of terror and sleep disruption. Yeah. Uh, and so to be able to work with that in a way that's more empowering right. is really helpful. Yeah, I think everybody should explore that. And just in case, I mean, they could look it up online, but yeah. just in case you and I forgot some sleep hygiene tip, I hope everyone knows that there's like dozens and dozens of sleep hygiene lists online. Mm -hmm. There are also really funny pictures of people who have been experiencing sleep paralysis with the demon on the end of the bed. It, they're actually famous, like artistic versions of, the, yeah, I wish, I'd that. Known, I wish I'd known that back in 1975. Those kinds of things are so terrifying because, again, you, you don't understand it. Where is this coming from? And, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've had those experiences myself, and yeah. it makes you kind of afraid to go back to sleep. It can, yeah. You know, which yes. is challenging. Right, right. Oh, yeah, we could go off on We could go on for that lot, forever, yeah. Yeah, a lot of stuff. I mean, yeah. people who've been traumatized in particular will often be afraid to go to sleep because of what may be coming. And, right. you know, that could be another whole episode. That could be. <laughs> All right. That will be another whole episode, I think. Well, thank you so much, John. Really have appreciated this conversation today and really appreciate you taking the time. You bet. Thank you. Thanks.